Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Christian Skeptic. I'm your host, Sean Kerwin, and as always, it's my mission to take an honest look at our questions about Christianity through the lens of logic and reason. I'm not here to preach at you, just to start a conversation with you. I hope you enjoy the show. So, let's continue talking about hell. And let's start by just jumping right in and talking about this idea that Satan is the ruler of hell. If you're just jumping in to this conversation and you haven't listened to the last episode, I recommend you go back where I start the dialogue in what is hell like, because this episode is just a continuation of that dialogue. And as I left off with sort of a cliffhanger in the last episode, I want to really start this episode by talking about Satan, by talking about Lucifer, by talking about the devil, the serpent of old. Have you noticed that culture is kind of fascinated with the devil in some regards? We have TV shows about him. We have songs about him. There's poetry. There's images. There's cults built around him. Well, this isn't really anything new. I imagine everyone listening has either read or at least heard of Dante's Inferno, which was the first in a trilogy of works in which Dante describes hell, purgatory, and heaven. And of course, in Dante's Inferno, there are layers to hell. There are nine different layers, and the first layer is kind of the, well, you weren't really a bad person, but you didn't believe layer, so you're going to hang out with the philosophers, and yeah, it sucks, and it's kind of tormenty, but it's really okay. And as you get deeper and deeper, the second layer is the layer of those who committed sins of lust. The third layer is those that commit sins of gluttony. The fourth layer is greed and so on and so on with murder and treason and lying and fraud until you get to the very center in which Satan, the devil, is held. Half of his body is in ice and his upper half is free. And I hope I'm not spoiling it for you, but, you know, Dante's Inferno ends with Dante having to climb down the legs of the devil through the void in the earth and he ends up in purgatory. But if I am spoiling it for you, that's honestly your fault. The book's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years now, so... Sorry, not sorry. And some of you may already know this, but the depictions we have of the devil with the horn, sometimes the head of the goat, sometimes hooves and pointy, windy tails and pitchforks, a lot of that is actually derived from Greek mythology, from depictions of Pan and both Hades alike. And, and I don't know that we should fault our culture too much for that. You see, in Greek mythology, Pan was represented with goat horns and a goat face and hooves, because that was what the Greeks believed was symbolic for lust. And of course, the early church and early Christians, as is evidenced by the writings of Paul and the other apostles, abhorred lust. They thought it was an evil. They thought it was a sin, mostly because lust is a sin in the biblical scriptures. And so it's no stretch of the imagination, and I would argue no fault of the early church, that as Christianity spreads throughout the world and becomes more popular, and enters mainstream culture, that some of the culture influences the images, the stories, and the writings of Christianity. And so thus, we have then the devil being depicted in a pan-slash-Hades kind of way throughout history as this horned red being with hooves and a tail and sometimes a pitchfork with animal and reptile and human-like features. But that's not in the Bible. We actually don't get a very good descriptor of what Satan looks like in the Bible at all. We get some descriptors, especially before he was fallen, when he was still Lucifer, son of the morning, as the prophet Isaiah records. Lucifer, son of the morning, was the leader of worship 
as it were, in heaven. And worship is not just singing. I'm sure in some regard Lucifer was a musician, but the grander picture is that Lucifer was in charge of everything that brought glory to God in heaven. For a discussion on what that looks like, see the episodes on heaven where we talk about what heaven would actually look like, what worship of God would actually look like in heaven. But needless to say, that's a very big job and requires a very, very humble being. And that's what he is initially described as. He's described as a being of light. He's described as beautiful. And then somewhere along the way, he betrays God by wanting to be God, which is the essence of pride, which is the essence of sin. And we don't have time in this episode to really dive into the details of what that means, so maybe we'll talk about Satan again in a future episode. But after the fall, after he betrays God, he's described as a serpent. He's described as a dragon. He's described as a beast, a monster. That doesn't necessarily mean he's part human, part reptile, part animal, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's not either. We know that Satan is a deceiver, and so it's possible that he still appears beautiful in his form. But what's the point of all this? Well, I am diverging a little bit. But the point of all this is that Satan is not what the culture describes him as, primarily being that he's the ruler of hell. The Bible gives no indication that Satan rules hell or is the king of hell or is the god or head angel of hell. Actually, the Bible says Satan is the ruler of this present age, that he's the prince of the power of the air. That yes, God is still in control of all of the world, but to some degree, God has given Satan freedom. He's given him a longer leash, as it were. And that's kind of what we see in the book of Job, where Satan still has to ask God's permission to do things. But the important thing is that God gives him permission, and that God has given him permission to be the prince of this world. And in Revelation, when we see Satan cast into the lake of fire, he's not cast in to rule the lake of fire, he's cast in as its chief prisoner. So that kind of dispels that. The next kind of cultural myth I want to very briefly touch on is that hell is not an eternal place, which that one we can very easily dismiss. And and the thinking behind it is one of perhaps compassion or hope, but it's misplaced. It's misplaced compassion and it's misplaced hope. It's a wanting of a divine get-out-of-jail-free card. But that ultimately contradicts what Jesus had to say. You see, Jesus was talking to his disciples and he essentially said, when you feed the sick, when you Uh, clothe the needy, he said, you're doing those things unto me. And then, of course, he contrasts that with those that don't, with those that are selfish, with those that are prideful. And this is Matthew 25, uh, around verses 40 to 46, that I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but he says that those that love God and serve God will go away into eternal life, and that those that do not love God and do not serve God will go away into eternal punishment. So the same word is used of heaven and hell, eternal in the same sentence, which therefore leads us to logically conclude if hell is not eternal, heaven must not be eternal either. And if that statement is true, then Jesus was lying, which really does crumble down a number of premises that we don't have time to get into again. So suffice it to say, if we take the premise that Jesus is the one true God, then we must follow it with the conclusion that Jesus speaks the truth. And if Jesus speaks the truth, then heaven is eternal and so is hell. And so there is no get-out-of-jail-free card after some number of thousands of years in hell. And if you tuned in for the last episode, you know that most people in hell probably wouldn't want it anyway. Because anything outside of heaven, of wanting to know, love, and serve God, must be hell. 
And the next kind of common cultural myth that I want to talk about is a little bit more of a gray area, and that's the, again, very Dante idea that there are levels in hell, that there's one level that's not as bad, and there's maybe nine, maybe three, maybe 200 different levels in hell in which each sin is judged on a different level. Now, biblically, we have nothing to support Dante's idea that there are nine different levels. Though I do applaud Dante for his creativity and the religious and political philosophy he lays out in his work. So this is not an insult to Dante in any way. And I don't think Dante would find it insulting to say that everything he said is probably not true. Though there are hints of truth in it, and some of it I would argue is probably derived from some truth and from some moments in history and famous people in history. For example, his description of the hold Satan has on Judas with Satan's teeth at the very end of the book is an excellently done allegory for probably what is a spiritual reality of the life that Judas lived. Is it literal? Probably not. With the biblical understanding of Satan, I would say I'm 90% sure that Dante's description of Satan's teeth around Judas's neck is not literal. But again, wonderfully done. And that's really the attitude we need to take to any descriptors of hell that are not found in the Bible, is we need to take it with a grain of salt. We can talk about the ideas, the poetries, or the allegories behind it, but we need to take it with a grain of salt because the Bible describes nothing of levels of hell. I was actually listening to a John MacArthur sermon on hell earlier this week, and he brought up a very good point that when someone's in hell, it's a result of their non-repentant life, right? Of their non-repentant mindset, meaning that as we talked about last episode, they've chosen not to love Jesus. They've chosen not to love God but rather they've started to hate God. And I say started, and I mean started here on this earth, and perhaps it's driven to its completion, to its infinite trajectory, as we talked about last time, in hell. But nevertheless, there's a hatred of God. I'm going to pause right here, because upon hearing that, you might think, well, yeah, I, I have friends that are living in sin, or are atheist, or agnostic, or what have you, and they reject Jesus, but I don't know that they hate God. And I would, I would actually agree with you. I don't think that they hate God, but I think the seeds of hatred for God are there. I'll put it to you this way. The Bible says that for the followers of Christ, we must love God more than we love our neighbors, more than we love our father, mother, brother, and sister. And at first hearing that, you might think, wow, that's, that's a little extreme. So I have to love God so much that my love for my, my parents and, and family has to look like hatred compared to how much I love God? Well, yeah, that's what the Bible says. And on a theological level, that choice begins as a seed, right? The Bible even says that faith begins as a mustard seed and that it grows. It grows into a tree that others take refuge in, right? That's, that's the kingdom. That's one of the kingdom parables. On an anthropological level, I would argue a hatred towards God begins in the same way. That, as we talked about last time, all throughout life, common grace is offered again and again and again and rejected again and again and again, and the seed grows and grows and grows. And there are probably ways, even on this earth, that you can have a spiritual check, if you are a Christian, to say, do I love God more than I love my family? There are probably hypothetical scenarios you can give yourself to say, well, if rejecting God would make your family happy, would you do it? And you say, no, you're, the seeds of loving God more than your family are there. The kingdom of heaven is there within you. And I would argue the same is true for hating God. If you can ask yourself, do I hate God more than I love my friends and family? 
perhaps with other hypothetical scenarios, like if a family member invited me to church, would I say no out of hatred for God instead of love for that family member? Anyway, I diverge. Back to the point I was making. John MacArthur said in his sermon that hell is the refusal to repent, right? That's what gets someone in hell, is loving their sin more than loving God, right? Or hating God. And the reason I say loving their sin more than loving God is because something has to fill that void. We must love something. It's either God or our sin. There is no in-between. And so John MacArthur brings up the point that in hell, God gives you the freedom to continue loving your sin, to continue in sin. And so he says, if hell then is intended to be the punishment for sin, but also if hell is the place where sin abounds and abounds and abounds and abounds and abounds with no end, then the punishment will never catch up to the sin in hell. So logically speaking then, I think that that kind of starts to dismantle Dante's theory of layers in hell. And I'm not going to say that lying and rejecting Jesus and and minuscule sins are equal to the sins of someone like, say, a Hitler or a Mussolini or someone who's committed mass murders. I would be insane to say that those sins are equal. And so it may be true that the varying levels of torment might differ in hell, which ultimately brings me to the last cultural myth I'd like to dispel in this episode, which is the difference between torture and torment. Again, in Dante's Inferno, we see that hell is laid out as a place of torture, where demons are torturing humans, where Satan is torturing people. And the Bible never uses the word torture. The Bible uses the word torment. Which, again, I would recall you back to the last episode where we talked about the flames of hell being metaphorical for something possibly much, much, much worse. And there, I think, in lies the torment. The false gods we pursue that are different from the one true God, and we talked about this last time, be they power, money, sex, pleasure, food, righteousness. These false gods are false gods. It's similar to Jeremiah calling out to the people in Jeremiah chapter 2, you're saying to a tree, you made me, and to a piece of wood, you gave birth to me. It's silly. It's ridiculous. Listen, if the number one thing driving your life is happiness, if the number one thing driving your life is power, success, pleasure, a relationship, status, goodness, all of those things, as we talked about last time, depend on God. So when you take God out of the equation, when you say, I don't want God, I want this, all you're left with is the desire with no possible means to fulfill it. You don't want God still, as we talked about last time, right? Even if you could have him, even if you could have heaven, You wouldn't want it. Even heaven would be hell, essentially. And there, I believe, lies the root of the torment, the root of the thirst, the isolating, crushing blow of a loss of identity, of hope deferred, and desires unmet. That doesn't necessarily answer the question, though, of whether or not you'll be bullied by demons or Satan or other people in hell. I think that's very possible. I do just want to say the Bible doesn't make mention of any of that. The Bible makes mention of weeping, gnashing of teeth, where the flame is not quenched and the worm does not die. And so it won't ever be this place, as I've heard some people say, of, well, I'd rather be in hell anyway because my friends will be there. You won't recognize your friends. Your friends won't recognize you. You'll essentially be Gollum with no hope of ever getting the ring. And that's because life was never about the ring in the first place, right? Life was never about the blessings in the first place. Life is about the blesser. And the blessings are a fringe benefit. 
And so as we've discussed before, if there's any punishment in hell, it's the punishment of God giving you exactly what you want, just without him in the picture, if what you want isn't him. But of course, as we've discussed in the episodes about heaven, if what you want most in life is to see the face of God, the Bible says, seek and you'll find, knock and it will be given to you. Ask and you shall receive. And that, as we've already discussed, is the biggest myth about hell dispelled, is that God doesn't forcefully send anyone there that doesn't want to be there. All who are there choose to be there and will most likely continue choosing to be there for all of eternity, but the same can be said about heaven. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this long discussion on heaven and hell over the many episodes. And if you still have questions, you still want to talk, well, let's do it. I'm here. Let's continue the conversation. But as always, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed the show.